You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Yep, that's it. Welcome into the maiden voyage of our brand new audio adventure. This is simply titled, as you heard, Commute. My name's Dave. My co-host is Jay. He'll join me in just a second. But the mission for this podcast is simple. Life is much too interesting for you to ever feel boring. So here's what you'll find from this podcast. Okay, so twice a week, Monday and Friday, in the morning, Hopefully, and maybe you listen to it later, maybe on your commute home, maybe when you're mowing the lawn, maybe when you're picking your kids up from daycare, whenever you have time, we will discuss two to three interesting topics that will make you A, more intelligent, and B, make you feel like you're always loaded with something interesting to talk about when the moment arises. And Jay, you know, I'm somebody who has commuted now for years, and my commute's much longer than this. The average American commute is about 25 minutes. Now, we're going to go a little shorter than that. We'll aim for 15 to 20 minutes per episode. But why waste your time in the car? Yeah, I've been all over the spectrum when it comes to commuting. Um, Whenever I started my first job back uh, and I was teaching in a neighboring county, My commute was over an hour long one way. You know, there were downsides to that, obviously. Now my commute is about five minutes. And I got to be honest, the, you know, there's things that I don't miss, obviously, about that long of a commute, but I kind of mourn that long commute in a way because it was a way for me to focus. It was a way for me to kind of get through things like podcasts or, um, or, you know, audiobooks or whatever. And I felt like the time was really valuable. So I think what what we're really trying to accomplish here with with this podcast, which I think is a good goal for everyone, is to don't see that time as wasted. Um, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about the commute, we think about the guy sitting in traffic who just got off his nine to five and he's tired and there's like smog and horns and it's back to back traffic forever. Uh, but you know, it doesn't have to be like that. You can look at your commute as sacred time. You know, as a time to explore something and learn something and yeah and uh, and you know, if you if you've got that time, use it. I think is kind of what we're trying to say here. Yeah, and and this is definitely not a current events podcast. So from time to time, you know, something may come up that just uh, we find interesting that just happened, and we want to make sure that you know about it and why that thing is interesting. But most of these things are from all over the place, every aspect of our life, just something that we've run into or something that's been on our mind. At some point, we're going to talk about the Loch Ness Monster because I've always been very interested in the Loch Ness Monster, but things like that, that maybe you didn't have a whole lot of information on. Um, And we're going to cover two topics today that definitely will be of interest. So here we go. Let's dive in. Here is topic number one. So Jay, we're going to talk the economics of Christmas trees. Uh, first of all, do you have a real or fake Christmas tree? Uh, I have a fake Christmas tree. I've had a fake Christmas tree um, 30 of my 31 years of life. So you are in the majority. 81% of Americans display a artificial Christmas tree for Christmas. So 19% of the Christmas trees you see out there are real. Now, I've gone back and forth. I grew up with a fake tree. Uh, when I got married, we switched to a real tree. And then this year, because we have a kid now, a real tree just got way too hard. So we went back to a fake tree. But there's a lot that goes into where those Christmas trees come from. So there are 350 million Christmas trees growing at any time in America. And they're in various stages of development. Two out of every three of those Christmas trees come from only four states in the U.S. Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan. And Pennsylvania. 
In fact, in Oregon, Christmas trees outnumber people 12 to 1. What makes Christmas trees an unusual crop, though, is the extremely long production cycle. So, Jay, it takes one Christmas tree 8 to 10 years to mature up to 6 feet tall, which is when it's uh, deemed uh, ripe. That's when you can sell that tree. So, because of that, farmers, Christmas tree farmers, have a difficult time trying to figure out, okay, how many should we plant for the upcoming year? If a recession happens, like one happened in 2008, Christmas tree farmers plant too few trees, thinking people won't buy them, and then prices rise over the course of the next decade when those Christmas trees are ready. Yes, the uh, artificial Christmas tree market has dipped into um, the the resources that are available with real Christmas trees. But also, you don't just really grow up wanting to be a Christmas tree farmer. So Christmas tree farmers are starting to age out. So we may, within the next 20 years, Jay, reach a point where real Christmas trees aren't even really an option or they're an expensive luxury. You know, it's almost like I kept thinking about how when you um, read the label of like a bottle of whiskey or something and they're bragging about how long it takes to make it, you know, eight years, 16 years or whatever. (laughs) It's like, I didn't realize that, you know, growing a Christmas tree was almost like aging a bottle of bourbon or something like that, that it's sort of uh, the, the detail in kind of payoff of it is in the time that it takes to grow it, which is always tricky when it comes to a product is that, you know, the more time you put into something, the, the trickier it is to perfect it. Uh, and so for me, I, you know, it's, it's hard because I get the mythos of picking out a Christmas tree, you know, like I understand it from a distance of, you know, packing up the family and driving somewhere and cutting down a tree. And, but at the same time, it's just been, I'm just, I guess I'm the person that's kind of con- helping contribute to the downfall of the Christmas tree industry in a way, but, but I just don't have a lot of interest in being a part of that mythos, you know, and maybe if I did it once, with a clear mind, I would like it or I would appreciate it more and it would become a tradition. But as it stands right now, I've just never taken that step. But even though, and what I'm going to say sounds hypocritical, but even though I am not part of the kind of culture of buying a live Christmas tree, it still does make me sad to hear you say this. And I don't have a reason for that. I know that I, I have a fake Christmas tree, but I, I'm, I'm sad. I think a real Christmas tree is almost a, like a vinyl, you know, so it's a lot easier for me to listen to music through Spotify, through a digital means where I don't even own the song. I, I don't own anything physical, but there's also a part of me. I have a record player. You know, I'm in my 30s. I have a record player. My grandparents are in their 80s and they have a record player. Somehow that came back around because there's just something about having that vinyl record. I really do think a real Christmas tree has that feel to it. You know, for me, it, it's just it's it's harder. You know, there's more work that goes into it. But I already know that one day I will return to the real Christmas tree. And I think it's because of that. I, I think I just have that special feeling deep inside when I think about getting a real tree and getting sap on my hands while I carry it in the house. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I have a record player, too. Um, and the, it's it is nice. You know, I used to use it a lot more uh, years ago. But, you know, at the end of the day, too, and this is going to this is going to upset you. But sometimes I just like want to listen to track five. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I don't want to listen to the whole record in one setting. You're you're disgusting. All right. So moving on from Christmas trees, the the tradition, the history, let's move into uh, another conversation about 
uh, history and historical topics. I'm a history teacher, so of course I'm biased in talking about archaeology and history, but I ran across an interesting story, and um, what's interesting about it to me is not necessarily the end result of the story, but it's the controversy that is sort of the root of this story just fascinated me. The quick version, uh, we're all familiar with the Titanic. I know you've seen the movie. You probably saw it in theaters a few times because you wanted to see a certain scene uh, when it came <laughs> out. But but that movie was uh, was huge and obviously, and it inspired just genera- a generation of people to be extremely interested in the historical uh, story of the Titanic. And so the Titanic is in a kind of a precarious position uh, as a site right now. It's two miles at the bottom of the ocean. It's been there for a hundred plus years. Uh, and so because of that, the bacteria has eaten away so much of the ship that within our lifetime, the ship will not be there anymore. Uh, it is it is rapidly deteriorating. And so because of that, there's been kind of this renewed interest in trying to excavate it because there are still pieces of it that are uh, that are kind of unexplored or unlooked at. And one of the most uh, fascinating pieces of the ship is the radio room of the ship. So within the radio room, that was where all the distress signals were sent out on the night that the ship sank. And within that radio room is the telegraph machine. Okay, so the telegraph machine is is believed to be still inside of the ship, um, damaged, of course, but still intact inside of the ship. Um, and so uh, archaeologists and historians have kind of pinpointed exactly where that uh, machine would be. And so it's this interesting artifact because it's it, it was it's part of the story of the ship you know it sent out messages and distress signals and it's literally saved hundreds of lives because it uh, was able to get a distress signal out and it's still there and so it's rotting away it's going to be gone uh, in a few decades so enter in a guy named David Gallo. He owns a company called RMS Titanic Incorporated, which is sort of a archaeological recovery type company. And he wants to go take and recover the telegraph machine. But the problem is, and this is what's interesting about it to me, is he hit a giant wall of controversy. Um, specifically from UK archaeology groups. Um, the one leading the charge was the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Organization, or the NOAA, which opposed um, Gallo's move to, to take this artifact. They see it as this is a historical site. This is a mass grave. Legally, the Titanic is protected as a historical site. And so you can't just pop in and take whatever you want. Um, it will cost Gallo five to seven million dollars to recover this artifact. And so he actually had to make a proposal to a U.S. district court to be able to get permission to do this. And uh, he did receive that permission. The uh, The uh, expedition was originally scheduled for this summer, but due to COVID protocols and travel restrictions, it's been postponed until later this year. So he does have permission. They are going to do it. They're going to recover the telegraph machine. And um, my question to you is, uh, do you think that it's that big of a deal? Do you side more with Gallo that this is something that should be taken? Or do you side more with the idea that this should be a piece of history which just wastes away with the ship? First of all, I love how rich people just need something to spend their money on. Yeah, five to seven million. Five to seven million to go recover something from the Titanic. Do you know what I could do with five to seven million dollars? 
So you know me, and for people that don't, I am the kind of guy that it takes a lot to impress me with certain things. So like, for example, if we go to an aquarium, I only want to see the sharks. I don't care about the fish. I don't care about any of the uh, underwater aquatic life. I really just want to see the big deal. If we're going to the zoo, uh, I just want to see the big animals. I want to see the animals that I can't see anywhere else. I don't care about the birds. I and don't want to see the spiders. And this is why we work well together because I'm the exact opposite. You know, uh, if I go to a museum or an aquarium, I'm, I'm the guy who reads every single card and looks at every single detail. So could not be more different. But when it comes to the Titanic, to me, it feels like something that's a big deal. I think that this is the kind of thing I could get behind um, because this would be an awesome piece of history to not only be able to see for generations to come, but just would give us more of an understanding, I think, of what happened exactly with the Titanic all those years ago. So, yes, if you're looking at the grand scheme of things within American history, the Titanic to me feels like a big deal. And so I like the fact that maybe we get a little bit more of it that's accessible. I tend to agree. Um, I, I did think about it, and I try to think about it from a historian's perspective as much as I possibly could. You know, I, I, I think it would be so interesting to walk into a museum to see this thing that you know has sat at the bottom of the ocean for 100 years that sent out the distress signals. To me, and it seems like the U.S. District Court agrees, but to me, that seems like a piece of history that should be uh, and needs to be preserved. But I think the controversy is fascinating, and I think it just opens up a conversation as to, you know, who owns historical artifacts, who owns these things, uh, when certain stock values uh, because of the movie, when a certain stock value on a historical object goes up or down, uh, what how does that change the conversation on um, who owns it, who should be allowed to profit from it? And um, what ultimately museum should it end up in, in what country, in what city? I think these are just really interesting conversations. Well, that's it. Hopefully you've arrived at work, finished mowing the lawn, picked your kids up from daycare, wherever you are headed. Maybe you're just sitting on the couch. Thanks for spending the last 15 plus minutes with us. So for Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Music provided on this episode by Jason Sammons. We thank you for listening to Commute and give us a uh, review. We are on your favorite podcast platform, so please rate, subscribe, and review to Commute, the podcast, and we'll see you next time.